Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. All right, well today we're uh, in week three of a four-week message series called The Bible for Grown-Ups, and as we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, who's this message series for? Well, really, it's for anyone who, like myself, was handed a Bible when I was a little kid, and I was handed a Bible, and my parents told me, this is God's word, every word is true, do what it says. And while I still agree with those statements, uh, that was perhaps a little simplistic because um, I, I didn't learn the rest of the story till much later in my life. And so if you grew up kind of handed a Bible, said this is God's word, but nobody ever explained why you should believe it or trust it, this message series is for you. Or perhaps, uh, perhaps when you were a kid, uh, you, when you were a kid, you had, you were given a Bible and you believed that it was God's word, but at some point along the way, maybe some different, uh, difficult questions were asked of you. Maybe you opened it up and saw some stuff in the Old Testament, like we're going to talk about today, and you went, man, I just don't know what to do with that. And so consequently, what happened was, maybe your faith was diminished or you became skeptical of the Bible. The series is for you. Or maybe you've never really given the Bible a close examination. Uh, So as we kind of look at this uh, book called the Bible, we're really talking about this idea of how many people grew up in church and they learned Bible stories, okay? People learned Bible stories, but unfortunately, they learned Bible stories, but they never learned, they never learned the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible tells us how those stories got there. The stories of the Bible, how we, when we learn about the history of the Bible, we actually learn why these components are there, how they fit together, and the big picture uh, that is all connected to it. Uh, as I've been saying, this book is a unique book. All right, I'm holding up what we call the Bible, and this uh, document actually contains 66 different documents written by 40 or more authors over the span of 1,600 years. It's divided into two parts, the Old Testament, we call it, and the New Testament, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, and, and the complexity of it and how it fits together and the story that weaves its way through the entire book is unbelievable. So here's what we've been saying. The story of the Bible, the story of the Bible sheds light on how we read, interpret, and apply what the Bible says. And you know this because you've seen people, or maybe you've even used verses out of the Bible, out of context, to harm people, to get what you want. People use the Bible in all kinds of ways. So when we know the story and the history of the Bible, it helps us to read, apply, and interpret what it says. Um, just to quickly summarize kind of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. In week one, we talked about how Jesus didn't write it. Okay? Now, again, if you're new to the Bible, you might be just assume Jesus came down from heaven and took a pen and wrote the whole Bible, but that's not the case. He didn't physically write it, but Jesus is the reason why we have it. And we learned this in week one, that something happened in the first century that triggered people to write about the story of Jesus, and that something that happened was the resurrection. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, his disciples believed him to be the Son of God and the Messiah, but then he died and all hope was lost. And on the third day he rose again to the surprise of his disciples and friends, and because he rose, people wrote accounts of his life. We have four accounts in the Gospels, four accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These documents were written because he resurrected. And because Jesus came back to life, the same people who were found hiding after his death would boldly proclaim the message of his resurrection even to their own deaths. 
and they would write about it, and they would write letters, and the church was formed. Uh, these are individuals who believed in the resurrected Jesus and worshipped him as God, and this began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this is where we were last Sunday. As this message of Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, you now have Greeks, Romans, and people of other nationalities who previously worshipped all kinds of gods, right? And these people started to abandon their idols to worship the resurrected Jesus. The problem with that was they didn't have their own creation story because when they abandoned all their gods, they were like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Who created us? So they began to read the Jewish scriptures. So when the Gentiles, okay, people who are not Jews, began to follow a Jewish Messiah, this is so important, they began to study the sacred text of the Jews. So you have to imagine, Romans and Greeks are picking up the sacred scriptures from Jewish people and reading them as their own. And you go, that, that created some problems, right? Uh, particularly for devout Jews, they were like, you can't steal our documents. You can't use our books. This became a huge problem. But these early Christians who were not Jewish embraced the Genesis account, the Genesis account, and it introduced a radically different and unparalleled and untested worldview. So when these Greeks and Romans began to read the Genesis account found in the Jewish scriptures, they discovered that there is one God, one God who created all things. And we learned last week, this unparalleled and different worldview was that God had created everything and everyone in order, with purpose, that humankind was at the pinnacle of his creation, at the center of it all, and God impressed his own image upon mankind, ascribing dignity and value and worth to every person. That's a worldview that did not exist. And, and these, these new Christians began to embrace this Jewish idea. So they were studying Jewish scripture, the scripture of the Jews, but they were embracing it and reading it as Christian scripture. Now this is really interesting. Because now you have Greeks and Romans reading Jewish scripture, and as they're reading it, they're actually looking for Jesus. Okay, They're actually studying it in what we call a Christological way. It's a big word. It means they're studying the Jewish scriptures of old, looking for Jesus. Now that's interesting. You say, well, why would they be looking for Jesus if all the Old Testament sort of Jewish scriptures were written before Jesus arrived on the earth? That's an interesting question. In fact, let me just give you one example of the answer. Jesus himself one day is talking to religious leaders who are Jews by birth, who studied, you know, the Bible is divided into Jewish scriptures and our smaller sort of New Testament scriptures. And Jesus studied and quoted these uh, Jewish scriptures and... <laughs> He's talking to these religious leaders who studied it and knew every word and were very, very specific about it. And here's what he says to them in John chapter 5, verse 39. Think about this. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, not the whole Bible, the Jewish scriptures. You search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. Think about it. Jesus says, you're studying God's word, the Jewish scriptures, believing that if you do enough, keep the law, understand it enough that you'll get to heaven and, you know, earn eternal life. And he's like, you think you have eternal life in the scriptures, but it's they that bear witness about me. Jesus says, the purpose of your Jewish scriptures is to point to me. Can you imagine the audacity of Jesus to say that? Imagine if I showed up today and say, this is the Bible, it's God's word, and it's all about me. You'd be like, we're finding another church. All right, that's, that's heresy, that's crazy. So not only does Jesus say that the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture is all about him, but he says, you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Not only is, does he say that it's all about me, he says, 
these Jewish scriptures that are God's word are not enough. They're not enough. The law and the prophets is not enough. You need something else, and that something else is me. No wonder the Jews killed him. And, by the way, as the early church began to go out throughout the Roman Empire, and they were studying the Jewish scriptures and talking about how they all point to Jesus, the Jews would often partner with the Romans to have Christians arrested and killed. Well, why not? They were blasphemers. They were, in the Jews' mind, um, taking their scriptures out of context. So, interestingly enough, I've got the wrong sermon notes in front of me. But don't worry, we're on track. We're on track. All right. Got the right ones. Get rid of those. That did not fly nearly as well as I thought it would. Awesome. So today we're going to be looking at... um, The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. We'll talk about why in a little bit. Uh, What's interesting about this conversation is you have to decide when you go to read these documents that are found in our Bible, you have to decide how you're going to read them. As I just said, Jesus said that they pointed to him. So if you're looking at the Old Testament through that lens, you're going to see something different than if you look at it going, hey, this, the Old Testament is all about me and us, and it's the rules, is our guidebook for life. So if you look at it that way, if it's all about me, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. If you look at it, it's about Jesus and it's part of a greater story, then all of a sudden it, it comes to life and it's full of amazing things. How you read it is, is very, very important. Today I want to share with you something, uh, it's a theological term, it's called progressive revelation. I want to illustrate this with you, play a little game. I have a, a trivia card in front of me. Uh, we play this game with my family. It's called, uh, well, we call it Smart Butt. Smart Butt, there is a, there's a donkey on the front of the game, so you can kind of figure out what the real name is. It's a trivia game, and uh, essentially what happens is I'm going to be giving you clues, and with each progressive clue, there's more and more information, and if you think you know the answer, go ahead and shout it out if you're in the room. For those of you watching online on our live stream, uh, there's a little bit of a lag. So if you type the answer and you're the first person to get it right on the live stream in the comments, then, then you're just the smartest person watching online, which is amazing. If you're in the room, you go ahead and shout it out. You can only guess once. That's the trick to this game. So you want to make sure you're sure, but you don't want to wait too long. Here's the first clue. This is, a, this is an object. This is something. So what am I? You guys ready? You look ready. Here's the first one. I'm a type of food. Incorrect, but good guess. Thank you. Here's the next one. You can make me, you can use me to make rocket fuel. All right. People used to think I was a spice. I can be white or brown. I heard the correct answer, but I'm going to keep reading the, the, the clues for the people online. I am an ingredient of the perfect little girl. I am an ingredient in placebo pills. (laughs) I am used to make rum. Sugar, you are absolutely right. So, (laughs) good job. And I don't know, maybe maybe someone online got it like right away. That's awesome. But what I want you to see is each each of the each of the statements that was made about sugar was absolutely true from the beginning, correct? But as each progressive piece of information, each clue started to build, guess what? Everyone listening started to go, I think it's, it's okay, it could be rice or sugar, brown or white. And, and so what happened is what we call progressive revelation. More and more information keeps coming to light, which narrows the field of focus. 
And this is how we read the Bible. This is how we read the Jewish scriptures. Because what happens is as you read them, you see a progression. You see God beginning by saying, here's a few things about me. And then here's a few more things about me. And here's some more things that point to what I'm going to do. And here's some more things that reveal more specifically what I'm going to do. And it builds and it builds and it builds like a great story. You don't pick up a novel and read the last chapter. You're like, I don't, I, I don't know why Romeo and Juliet just drank poison. Because you, you didn't read the story. You didn't, you didn't read the story. And so there is a story. And throughout the story of the Jewish scriptures, we find God revealing himself in an amazing way. So what I wanted to do today was simply to uh, kind of walk through in a really broad, sweeping way the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish scriptures. And I hope this is helpful as you begin to think about how to read it and study it. We begin, the first movement is really creation, which I won't spend a lot of time talking about since we addressed it last week. And in creation, what we find is there's one God, not many. And that, that doesn't surprise us. Again, in our world, we go, is there God or no God? In the ancient world, it was like, which God is the God? There's one God. And he created things not out of chaos, but out with purpose and order, design, humankind, all those things we talked about, dignity and value. If you don't get this piece right, the rest of the Bible story won't make sense. It's the initial building block upon which everything else you read makes sense. Because God loved humanity and created us in his image, he wants to redeem humanity. And the whole, it, it really, the rest of the story is sort of built on that. So we have creation. The next thing we find, and this is super important, is the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And, and this is the next building block. So God created things with purpose. Humankind loves. He's personal. But then humankind rejects God. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They take of the forbidden fruit. And when they sin, it severs their relationship with the God who created them. But it also severs the relationship with one another. Husband and wife. Brother to brother. Brother to sister. Parents, kids, all our human relationships are infected and affected by sin. And we see the rest of the Bible story and the world we look at when we drive around in our car is influenced by the fact that sin is in the world. People say, why do bad things happen? Why does God let them happen? Because sin is in the world. And when we look at people, we go, hey, I see in this little baby the glimmer of God's, there's something in their eye. I see someone do a kind deed and like, there's goodness in them. That's because they were made in the image of God. And then they turn around and hurt you and you're like, oh yeah, the fall. There's sin. There's something of God in us and there's something of sin in us. And that sets the stage for the rest of the story. You, you tracking with me so far? So we're building the blocks. Here's the next thing. The patriarchs. God decides, I'm going to reveal myself to the world through an individual. And I honestly believe that God still does this today. That he will reveal himself to the world through people, through individuals. He might use you in your workplace. He might reveal himself to the people that you go to school with through you, through your life, through things you say. So he reveals himself to a man by the name of Abraham. And he essentially says to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to make of you a nation. And through you and your descendants, I'm going to reveal myself to the entire world. And not only that, but through you and your descendants, the Jewish nation, I am going to bless the entire world. Now he's talking about Jesus, his son. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. And through Jesus, all people of all tribe and nation can come to know the Father and be right with him. So God's got a plan, and he's slowly revealing it. So he calls a man by the name of Abraham. Now, if you don't understand that, remember, progressive revelation, there's a story being written. You might read the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you might, you might see some things in that story 
that make you want to put the Bible down. There's two things that I often run into, objections. There's two things that you'll find in the patriarch's story. Polygamy and primogeniture. Polygamy, all right, it's a big word, means men marry more than one wife. So you have this powerful man with all these wives and servants, kind of like this patriarchal institution. So you have that. The second thing you have is primogeniture, which is this idea that the oldest son, the firstborn son, kind of gets everything, gets the power, the family name, and the younger sons, they get way less, and the daughters, well, they get nothing. And when we, when we see these things taking place in the patriarchal stories, guess what happens? Something inside of me goes, that ain't right. Anybody here think polygamy is a good idea? Okay, one hand went up in the back and then quickly went down. No. Uh, nobody, thinks, nobody thinks that's a good idea, right? Like when you look at it, you go, yeah, that's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. Andy Stanley says, if you have a favorite wife, things will not go well in your life. <laughs> I like that. All right? Polygamy is a bad idea. We all agree, right? So why is it in the Bible? Why is Abraham, the great man of faith, have two women that he has children with? Why does Isaac have multiple wives? So you read the story and you're like, this? How can this be the same God of the New Testament? Well, we're going to go on. Primogeniture. This is the one, again, where the oldest son gets everything. What's interesting when you read the story in the larger context is this. God is actively subverting both of these cultural issues in the lives of the patriarchs. Read the stories. And you will find that any time polygamy is practiced, it goes very badly. Fights, wars, family, it's destructive, it's bad. Nowhere does God say this is a good idea or affirm it. And he's taking Abraham from a culture that embraces these things and moving his people away from it. The second thing is primogeniture. You go, well, why does God like favor the oldest son and not the daughters and all stuff? When you read the story in the broader picture, you will find God actively subverting it. Abraham has two sons right? He has Ishmael and he has Isaac. Ishmael's the older. Guess which one God chooses? Isaac the younger. Isaac has two sons, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest. The father has every intention of practicing this and giving the blessing to the older son. And who does God choose? The younger. And then Jacob has 12 sons and his eldest Reuben, not the guy. God is actively going, no, 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 no. This is not the way. So, again, some of these cultural issues, if you just go and read a few chapters and you go, this doesn't make sense, this isn't right, when you read the whole story, it becomes a little more clear. So, those are just a couple of objections that come up. One of my favorite passages in all the scripture uh, is actually found at the end of a book called Job. And the book of Job was actually written around the same time as Abraham. Abraham and Job would have lived roughly around the same period of time. Polygamy, primogeniture, all that stuff would have gone on. And what you discover is at the end of Job, Job goes through loss and tragedy, and it says that he, God reveals himself to Job in a powerful way, and I think it's the second last verse. You can go read it. Second last verse of Job, it says, when he died, he left an inheritance to his sons and his daughters. So you have a, a man in the ancient world who knows God and, and who changes the way he views the world. So anyway, you guys hear what I'm saying? Big story. Let's go on to the next step in the, in the story. The next step is the nation, the nation of Israel. So this family of, of, of Abraham's grows into a great nation in, in Egypt. And then Moses delivers them from the powers of Egypt. And people say, well, why did God descend all those plagues? Well, each of those plagues was God saying, I'm greater than your Egyptian God of the river, your Egyptian God of fertility and the frogs, your Egyptian God of uh, raw, and I'm darkening out the sun, your sun God. So God was like demonstrating his power over the ancient gods, and he delivers his people. And so Moses is leading this massive group of Israelites and Jews 
to the promised land that God said he would give to Abraham and his descendants. And on their way, they stop at Mount Sinai and they enter into a covenant with God. Now, a covenant's a hard thing to explain because we don't see many of them in our culture today. Um, The closest thing I can think of to an ancient covenant would be our traditional marriage. I've got a wedding ring on. This ring is a sign of a covenant that I have with my wife Jessica, who was up on the stage with me earlier. Uh, A covenant... Uh, Covenant language sounds like this. I will support you, love you, be there for you through sickness, through health. I can't even remember the vows, right? But till death do us part. You get the idea. It's like until we die, we're stuck together. I'm with you. That's it. And this is a sign that I'm in a covenant relationship with somebody, right? So if there's ladies want to hit on me, they see this sign and they go, oh, he's taken. He's in a covenant. And when you enter into a covenant, it's a lifelong thing. And the covenant also has, um, it has blessings and boundaries. So when I put this ring on and I married my wife, it means I can hug her, I can kiss her, uh, we share money, resources, all that stuff. We share our lives, but it means I also can't share it with somebody else. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? Like there's blessings and there are, there are limits. And, and so what happens is the nation enters into a covenant with God. So this is important. Because at Mount Sinai, God enters into a special relationship with the Jewish nation. And if you're not Jewish, that's not your covenant. That was their covenant. And through that covenant, we learn all kinds of things about God, and there's all kinds of application, but it was a covenant with them. God enters into a covenant with them and gives them law. Because they're about to become a nation. And every nation needs laws. We have laws in Canada. We have traffic laws, and we have tax laws, and we have you know human rights laws, and things that keep everybody in line, and God is going to give them a law with the Sinai covenant that will help them enter into the land and prosper. Now, many people, when they read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, they go to the Jewish law, the Sinai covenant, and they open up and they start picking and choosing verses that offend our current culture. Some of you might already know what they are. They go, oh, that's offensive, that's offensive, and they want to throw out all of it because of a few things that offend us. In fact, this is a statement from Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. Again, what I want you to see here is that he's kind of cherry picking ideas that we find offensive. He says, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions. Oh boy. God, there goes God getting in the bedroom, trying to control what we do, ruin our fun with the smell of charred flesh. He's like, this is essentially who the God of the Old Testament is. That is a very, very, very bad reading of the Mosaic Law. In fact, let me just make one quick reference to Leviticus 18. In case you're wondering, the sexual restrictions that he's referring to are all found in this chapter, Leviticus 18. I'm not going to read them to you today because that would be kind of weird and gross. You can go home and you can read this for yourself. What you find in, in Leviticus 18 is God actually gives the nation of Israel roughly 19 things they shouldn't do sexually. He says, here are things that are not to be done in the nation of Israel. What you need to know is that Egypt, where they left, was practicing every one of those things. And Canaan, the land they were going to, practiced every one of these things. And God says, you're not going to do these because you're entering into a covenant with me. There's restrictions on you, my people. And so you're not going to do these things. And he lists them. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. 17 out of those 19 restrictions are still either illegal or frowned upon in every developed nation in the world. There are two that we would find culturally offensive, but the other 17 were groundbreaking. 
So again, it's interesting how people will go into a chapter like that and pull out one thing that offends our culture and say, this is all hogwash, garbage, throw it out. What we discover, uh, well, here's, here's one example. Let me just show you one. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Who thinks that's fair? Yeah. Anyway, a few of you agree with that. Okay. Here's the point. Next slide. Here's the point. The Sinai covenant given to the nation of Israel, a moral and civil code that when understood in its ancient context was absolutely brilliant. It was so far ahead of the ancient laws and customs of the world, and it reveals something about God and his holiness and his character and his desire for human flourishing. Again, it's unbelievable. Again, with the Sinai covenant, um, the, the, the protections afforded the most vulnerable were nothing short of revolutionary. If you were a slave... You wanted to live in Israel, not Egypt. If you were a woman or a child, you wanted to live in Israel and not Canaan. You, you, because there were protections afforded to the vulnerable. Why? Because this whole story began with each person, men and women, created in the image of God. And you see God working to change and shift culture and build and prepare something that he's going to do. The next step in the process, got to move along here, is a kingdom. The, the Jewish people were not satisfied with just having a nation They wanted to be like all the nations around them and have a kingdom. They wanted to have a king to rule over them. God says, bad idea. They're like, we want one anyways. He gives them kings. The kings go to war. The kings turn from God. The kings have multiple wives. The kings make a mess of everything. Then the the people wanted a temple because all the other nations had temples. And so they build God a temple, this big golden cathedral to God. God was happy living in a tent. They built him a huge temple. And here's what happens. Because sin is in the world, Because the people continued to violate and break the covenant that they were unable to keep, the kings turned from God, the nation turned to sin, the temple worship was twisted and broken, and the last step is the prophets. And the prophets turn up at the time of the kings, and the prophets begin to send correction and warning to the kings and to the nation to say, you are breaking your covenant with God. And remember, God said, if you keep my covenant, I'll bless you, protect you. And if you break it, I'll allow the nations around you to come in and destroy you. That's why this is happening. So they were giving correction and warning. And on occasion, this is cool, the prophets would have visions of the future. And they would get glimpses of God's master plan. Things that God was planning to do throughout the ages. And, and there are all these prophecies and things pointing to Jesus that come out of the prophets. And I want to read one to you today. It's found in uh, Isaiah 53. And some of you have read this. This was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth by a Jewish prophet named Isaiah. And he describes a suffering servant who would come, and here's what he says. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was was put through. Something was put through him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. See, Isaiah's getting a glimpse of God's master plan. He put a law in place with, with, with punishments and prohibitions and all of those things. And the Jewish nation could not keep the law. They could not do the right thing. And so God is going to bring about our peace. He's going to bring peace through himself. That it was on him and it was by his wounds we are healed. That God is going to do something through which we would be saved and healed. The Lord has laid on him. Who's the him? This was written hundreds of years before Jesus. The iniquity of us all. Our sins that was supposed to go on the bulls and the goats and the pigeons is, is going to land on who? Who's this him? Next verse. 
He was cut off from the land of the living. He died. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He's buried in a, in a wealthy man's tomb. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life, be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I think this is the last verse coming up. Nope, let's go back. This, this passage points to Jesus, which is amazing. And you know, it's, what's interesting to me is that it so clearly depicts the death, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus, written so far beyond, before he, he was alive. Um, for hundreds of years, scholars said, you know what? The oldest Hebrew version of the scroll of Isaiah we have is from A.D. 1000. So almost a thousand years after Jesus rose, that was the oldest Hebrew document they had of the scroll of Isaiah. And so what critics of the Bible said is they said this. They said, well, someone along the way added this chapter in to make it look like it's pointing to Jesus. So they wrote it in after the fact. You with me? And there was no way to verify that, that this was or wasn't true until 1946, and this is fascinating. In 1946, they found caves that were hidden for 2,000 years. And in these caves were a collection of documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's so cool about this is they found this cave, and inside the caves, they found a complete scroll of Isaiah in the Hebrew language written at least 100 years before Jesus came to earth. You know what they found? Isaiah 53 reads exactly like that. And people who made arguments to say, well, hey, over thousands of years, people changed the Bible, added things. When they compared a a scroll from 100 BC with a scroll from 1000 AD, 1100 years, and they compared them, exact match. Unbelievable. The prophets foretold a Messiah who would come and save the world. So here's, I guess here's the point. When we look at the Old Testament, we see progressive revelation. We see God weaving a story and revealing himself to the world. In fact, God wades himself into the fray and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. You have to look at where the story begins and where the story is going, what God is doing in the world. The Old Testament, our Old Testament, is a saga of an ancient people struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were real, and death was just a minor infection away. And in spite of that, they clung to Yahweh, and he in turn clung to his nation, careful not to override their freedom with his presence. We need to be careful that when we read the history of the Jewish nation, which is the history of God working in the world and revealing himself and bringing about the Messiah, that we don't want to sand off the rough edges, that we don't want to try to make it pretty, This world isn't pretty. And God came into a fallen, sinful world and began to work in that world to bring about our salvation through His Son. Uh, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament says this, and this is where we'll close. In Galatians chapter 4, he says this, when the set time had fully come. What that tells us is that God was working a plan. When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul tells us in his New Testament documents that the law at Sinai was given to reveal sin, to teach us about our sin, and to show us that we cannot become holy on our own, therefore needing a Savior. So the law actually points us to Christ in a sense and reveals our sin. Born under the law, Jesus was, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God had a plan all along. 
that Christ would fulfill the law that the Jewish nation could not and make adoption into his family available to people of every single nation. And I'm getting ahead of myself because next week we're going to look at the writings of Paul and how this story comes together. I guess in conclusion, um, the story of the Old Testament is, it, it should cause us to want to drop to our knees and be thankful. You know, in the early church, uh, Christians who were Greeks and Romans looked at the Jewish people and thought, these, these people rejected their own Messiah. We don't want to take them seriously. They actually, there was anti-Semitism that started to arise. And, and, and Paul writes, don't, don't do that. Because their story is our story. And God chose them for a purpose. And God has used them as an instrument to reveal himself to all of us. And, and he actually pushes against those ideas. And so when we open up our Bible, we have two segments. We have what we call the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Scriptures, and we have the New Testament, which includes the Gospels and some of the writings of the new church. And they're put together um, for our for our benefit. So we have the Old Covenant, and the reason why they called it the Old Covenant was because when the early church began, the Christians who embraced Christ viewed the Sinai Covenant as completed in Christ and that they were entering into a new covenant. And now we call it the Old Testament. And you know what a, a, a will and testament is, right? A will and testament comes into effect when? When somebody dies. And Christ died, taking the Sinai law with him. By the way, that's why we eat pork. Well, some of us eat pork, okay? That, that, that covenant went down with him, and we enter into a new covenant. When Jesus had communion with his disciples, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And we enter into a covenant with him that, by the way, has blessings and it has restrictions, but we'll get into that another time. So with that, I want to I close in prayer. I, I hope this is helpful. I, 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 there's so much information I'm trying to put together here to share with you, but when you read the, the Old Testament in its context, it points to Christ. It reveals sin. It, we see humanity in its rawest form and God working through it to bring us a Savior. And so once you see Jesus, you go back and you discover the treasures that are there for us uh, when we read it in its context. So I hope that's helpful. Let's pray together, and, um, and then the band's going to come up and lead us in a song. Father, thank you. For thousands of years, these documents were preserved and eventually cataloged in a book we call the Bible. And there isn't a person in this room, whether we know it or not, that has not been impacted by the words of the Scripture. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never trusted you, who's, who's looked at you as their God, just as a, a handout, a, a quick fix, Lord, that you're a covenant God and you long and desire to enter into a deep and meaningful and eternal relationship with your people. And I pray that if there's anyone here who's never done that, they would do that today. I, I pray that through this series, as we continue and close it out next week, that you would reveal to us the treasures that are in your word and that we would grow through it and learn to love it. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.